Gracious and holy God, we enter into your presence, bringing all the cares with us. We'd like to say we checked them at the door, but we recognize that we did not. And so let the meditations of our hearts and minds and the words of my mouth be acceptable in your sight, for you are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. So we have been in the midst of this study about the Lord's Prayer. We've been taking a look at this model that Jesus gave his disciples, this model that Jesus gave you and me about prayer. It's the way we shape our prayers. It's the kinds of things that we should lean into when we pray. We've been taking each line, one line at a time, and unpacking it and diving in for a deeper understanding of what Jesus is saying to us and how God works through us in each of these lines. We have learned that God is a holy God. God is worthy of our praise. We have learned that God's kingdom is not a place but a condition within our own hearts where we encounter God with holy humility. We also learned that God is the kind of God that takes care of every single need that we have in our physical lives, and so we ask that God give us our daily bread. We also learned last week that we are kind of imperfect people, and that that's all right, imperfect people who love and forgive imperfectly are perfected by God's perfect forgiveness. And this is how we experience God's grace. Today, we lean into the line that says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And I have to tell you, this line gives me problems. It gives me a problem because I do not believe that God leads us into temptation. In fact, I read in James 1.13, it says, No one, when tempted, should say, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. The, the uh, writer goes on to say that no one that is tempted by God, but rather we are victimized by our own desires, which is that which lures us and entices us into temptation. Another version of the Lord's Prayer says it a little bit differently, and we find this version in our uh, hymnal. And in some translations, it actually says, save us from a time of trial. Save us from our times of trial and deliver us from evil. So here's what I want to do today. I want to unpack and dig into this notion of temptation, a time of trial that all of us face. It's not a matter of if we face it, it's a matter of when we face it. It is a part of our human condition. And if we face it, then I want to lean into what I can learn about temptation in the scriptures. And so I'm reminded of the Israelites, how they, how they were 40 years in the desert and they, they moved from place to place and encountered all kinds of temptations and their temptation was to continually complain and be disgruntled about what God is doing for them and and every single time God provided, and yet every single time the Israel's tr Israelites turned away. And then I look at the, all the king stories, and man, I'll tell you what, we find a lot of temptation there, don't we? How about David and Bathsheba? 
These are imperfect humans, we learn, and they are not exempt from temptation. Even Job, even Job, who was challenged by his best friends to turn away from God because he had come on troubled times. But my favorite one, my favorite one and the one I think we can learn the most from is the one about Jesus in the wilderness. This temptation of Jesus is found in every one of the Gospels in varying shapes and forms. The one that is in Matthew's Gospel, however, gives us the most details about Jesus' temptation. So let us look in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Listen to what the, um, what the Gospel writer is telling us about Jesus' time in the wilderness. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was famished. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, no one, do, one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to, a holy, to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, a third time, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, All these I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him, and suddenly angels came and waited on him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Forty days in the wilderness kind of helps us reflect back on the 40 years in the wilderness that the Israelites faced under Moses' leadership. Jesus' trials in those 40 days actually mirror three significant trials that the Israelites faced in the, in the chapters of Exodus story. And Jesus' response every single time when he says it is written is from those same Israelite stories that is found in Deuteronomy. There's one big difference between Jesus and the Israelites. And that is that the Israelites failed to be faithful. They turned away from God and they turned towards their small g-gods. Jesus held fast to God alone in every single temptation. Now, let's, let's unpack these three temptations. There are three of them. The desire to prosper, to thrive, to live. The desire for protection at all costs, for safety. The desire for power. 
In each one of these cases, Jesus' response is that we are to focus on God, not on the things that God provides. Never does Jesus fall victim to objectifying God. He doesn't use God to provide, but puts his faith and vision in God alone. So let's look at each one of these. The first one is one that we, that we feel like is just a part of who we are. It is our desire and our love to prosper in all things that we do in our life, to thrive and to, to get the best that life has for us. And so, and so the tempter comes to Jesus and he says, you're hungry. And we know that God is a good God and God is the sustainer and God is the source of, of survival. Was it not God that gave manna in the wilderness? So then, O oh Jesus, turn these stones into bread. But Jesus doesn't focus on this need for physical well-being at the expense of the source of that physical well-being. Instead, Jesus actually says, one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then the tempter is not done with him. The tempter takes him into the sacred holy city and he places him at the top of the temple and he says, throw yourself down. He says, throw yourself down. We know those angels will take care of you. But Jesus is smarter than that. He's no fool. He knows that we love this need. We have this human need to feel protected and safe. And that, that the tempter is toying with him. That the tempter is inviting him to, to lean into our safety and our protection at the cost of the one who provides that. And so Jesus knows that God indeed provides for our safety and for everyone who serves God's people, but he refuses to make that the way that we measure God's provision. And so he says very simply to the tempter, do not put the Lord your God to the test. That's my favorite response. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. And then, and then the tempter leans into that which plagues all of us from time to time, our desire for power and position. And so he takes him to the highest mountain and he says, look out, see all that you can see, every single kingdom, all that you can see as far and as wide as you can see will be yours if you will do as the world has you do. But Jesus, again, is not happy with, with what he is offering. He realizes that that is temporary, that everything in this life, everything that we might desire is so temporal. And so it's short-sighted. And he, he says that you are to worship no one but God, your God, and serve only him, not the ways of the world. In every single one of these, these temptations, the tempter is crafty. The tempter offers something that we know we already have because we are God's people, because we are God's children. But what the tempter does is turn it around 
and says, will you take what you have instead of worshiping the provider? The nature of our good God is to gift us with goodness, with security, with confidence that where we are, whatever our station in life is, is enough. And yet we are tempted to grasp on to that which God already gives us without recognizing the source, the giver of all these good gifts. Timothy Beach Veery says it this way, the temptation is to love the gifts of God more than the giver. And Augustine says it this way, he says, oh God, you have made us for yourself and for our heart you have found and our hearts find no peace until we rest in you and you alone. And Jesus, Jesus in Matthew, just a couple of chapters later, says it this way. He says, do not worry, for your heavenly Father knows that you do need all these things. But instead, strive for the kingdom of heaven and for God and his righteousness. And then all these things will be given to you as well. Temptations are internal. They are the desires of our own physical need, emotional balance that continues to break us and pain us because we have not le leaned into this God that provides for those things. But the second part of this saying, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, acknowledges that there are also forces outside of us external things. And our United Methodist baptismal vows say this, this very important question for us. Do you accept the freedom and the power that God gives you to resist evil, to resist injustice and oppression in whatever forms they give themselves to? Parents take these vows in order to live an example for the child with which they present for baptism. The individual takes these vows to live as an example for the world to see. Now let's unpack that a little bit. Freedom and power that God gives us to resist evil and injustice. Man, we only have to turn on the news to realize that there is a heck of a lot of injustice going on and evil going on in our world. If we listen to our neighbors, we hear it. If we listen to our enemies or our adversaries, we talk about all the social ills that are around us, we begin to know that there is this evil force in the world. And we acknowledge that there is much work for us to do in these areas of injustice and areas of oppression as we recognize how we, we, some groups of people have less than other groups of people. As we begin to address just the simplest things like hunger in our community, as we begin to think about abjunct poverty and the effects of that on lives, never mind all the isms that we deal with every single day, terrorism, racism, human trafficking. These are complex, multifaceted issues, and we all agree that they need our attention, even if we are not of one mind on how we get through them. They inflict pain. They cause us to be separated from God and from one another. But they're not new. They've 
been around since the beginning of time. And they were especially around in the first century. And so Jesus leans into this. Jesus says, Jesus counsels us that we need to ask God to deliver us from these evil forces. And then we are to lean into it because God makes us free agents. We have the freedom and the power to partner with Jesus. We accept that in our baptismal vows. We remember that God empowers God's people so that we can serve God's people. We partner with Jesus to be the delivery agents when it comes to fighting against these evil forces in our world. But man, I have to tell you, it takes a lot of strength and a lot of wisdom to do that. And we can only find that strength and wisdom when we are on our knees. Sir George Adam Smith is a, a Scottish theologian, and he is an avid climber when he lived. He died in 1945. And he, he loved to climb these steep mountains, especially the ones in the Swiss Alps. And so his goal was to, to uh, climb Mount Wishorn. And this is a, a steep mountain that has the heights, and you can see so far around, but it's also treacherous to get up there. Finally, one day, he, he uh, went on an expedition, and he and his guide headed up the mountain, but it stormed that day. It stormed as they got towards the pinnacle, so they hid themselves and propped themselves up on the, on the, um, safe, on the sheltered side of the peak. But when they got to the pinnacle, when they got up there, and he looked out, and it was as breathtaking as he might have even imagined, far above the clouds. But what he forgot was when you're up there, the winds are very strong. So when he stood up, he nearly was blown over the side of the cliff and onto the glacier below, but his guide grabbed him and pulled him down and said, no, sir, when you get to this height, you are more stable on your knees. Perhaps Jesus had that in mind when he gave us this line. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Recognizing that we cannot do it on our own strength, with our own knowledge, with our own will. But in fact, we need to stable ourselves on our knees.